Turn in your Bibles to Romans, the fifth chapter. You can consider this evening's sermon a long introduction to the real sermon on this passage. But I think that it's uh, important that we talk about this issue of Adam uh, from the scriptures before we actually expound the text. It will take at least two sermons to go through this portion of scripture. And, um, And I think we need to address the historicity of Adam. So we've come to the fifth chapter of Romans in our series, beginning at verse 12. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless it to our reading and understanding. Romans 5, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now people of God, we are taught by the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, that all Scripture is God-breathed. We who are Christians believe that the Bible is God's Word inspired, and we believe God on His own authority. That there is a weakening of this view is very apparent. We see it ethically. The evangelical church, speaking broadly, is loath to take a biblical stand on much of anything that causes offense in our culture. We see it before that doctrinally. In so many ways that we can hardly count, there is doctrinal compromise in the church of Jesus Christ today. The great doctrines of the Bible are rejected or shaved or ignored or reinterpreted. And as we come to this passage, I thought that before we actually investigate what Paul is saying in this passage, that the present climate demands that I address first the question, must I or must we believe in Adam? You may say that this is obvious, the Bible teaches it, and so the answer is yes, and that is the correct answer. However, there are many in the church, many calling themselves evangelicals, that question 
whether it is important to believe in the historicity of Adam. Just going back a little distance in history, if you were to pick up Karl Barth's commentary on Romans, his famous commentary, uh, it's, uh, if you take time to read it, you'll find that it's anything but a commentary on Romans. It's very difficult to say precisely how you would, you would define the book, but he denies the historicity of Adam. If you were to pick up C.H. Dodd's well-known commentary on Romans, he says, and I quote, Adam is a myth, unquote. And he claims that we still can benefit from what Paul is saying, even though Paul is wrong. You might say, well, one would expect this from Karl Barth or from a a theologian such as C.H. Dodd. Yeah, but let me put it to you another way. Uh, In our own day, there are those who are questioning the historicity of Adam or those who are questioning whether Adam was actually created from the dust of the ground. And some are even saying that theistic evolution is a model that evangelicals can adopt in order to understand this whole issue of Adam. Fuller Seminary is still thought of as an evangelical seminary. Perhaps no seminary sends forth more missionaries into the world than Fuller, and its influence is huge. It's also a very huge seminary, as seminaries go. J.R. Daniel Kirk is the associate professor of New Testament at Fuller, and in a 2013 article, which I have in my study if you want to see it, he wrote an article entitled, Does, Paul, Does Paul's Christ Require a Historical Adam? He's fully aware that the Christian faith has seen an inseparable tie to Adam and the origin of sin and the accepted view of the church that Christ is the last Adam redeeming us from sin brought into history by the first Adam. But he argues that it is unnecessary to hold to the historicity of Adam. A number of years ago, a great New Testament scholar in the Netherlands, whose name was Versteeg, unhappily speaking in human terms, God does all things well, uh, but speaking in human terms, he died a very, uh, a very early death. But he was a great New Testament scholar, scholar, and Versteeg wrote a fine treatment on this matter, showing that the historical Adam is part of the warp and woof of the Bible, and especially of the theology of the Apostle Paul. He made this statement, to be occupied with the question how Scripture speaks about Adam is thus anything but a matter of being occupied with an insignificant problem of detail. As the first historical man and head of mankind, Adam is not mentioned merely in passing in the New Testament. The redemptive historical correlation between Adam and Christ determines the framework in which, particularly for Paul, the redemptive work of Christ has its place. That work of redemption can no longer be confessed according to the meaning of Scripture if it is divorced from the framework in which it stands here. Whoever divorces the work of redemption from the framework in which it stands in Scripture no longer allows the Word to function as the norm that determines everything. There has been no temptation down the centuries that theology has been more exposed to than this temptation. There is no danger that theology has more to fear than this danger. I think Fairsteg is absolutely right. Must I believe in Adam? Well, we have just read this portion of the fifth chapter of the book of Romans in which the entirety of salvation is set up by Paul as the last Adam who redeems us from the sin and guilt brought into the world by the first Adam. His entire argument stands or falls upon that theme here in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. 
And Romans 5 is clearly dependent on Genesis chapter 1, 24 through 31, and also upon Genesis chapter 3. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and take the time actually to read a few of these verses. Genesis 1, we'll pick it up at verse 24 and read through verse 31. Genesis 1, beginning with verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food." And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, really, we should read into chapter 2 and chapter 3 in order to get the context more broadly, but I'm going to count on the fact that you know it well. Now let's summarize, and this would be your first point if you're a note taker, Adam in Genesis. Adam in Genesis. The first thing I think we're to note about Adam in Genesis, and I'm going to be brief in my presentation of this, is that man is a creature. Man is a creature. He is created the same day as the animals, according to chapter 124 and following. He is told that he must be fruitful and multiply, just as God said concerning the fish. He is a creature. Uh, God is transcendent. There is an infinite distance between God and His creation. We must maintain the creator-creature distinction. God is never to be identified. He is never to be mingled with His creation. Now I know that some of you young people get this from Jeff, where he underscores the creator-creature distinction and draws on the blackboard, or whiteboard I guess it is nowadays, the board and your... uh, place out here. Uh, He (laughs) draws the two circles and he shows you how they relate. Now that's what Dr. Van Til would constantly draw on, I guess, blackboards in those days. Uh, The creator-creature distinction. One circle representing the creator, the other, the creature. They do not connect except in the way in which they relate by creation. When Dr. Ventil was professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, the uh, janitor used to come in and would go and erase one of the circles, or he would rework the circles in some way, and Dr. Ventil would get him by the scruff of the neck and bring him into his class and make him redraw the circles appropriately. 
Because you see, nothing can disturb the creator-creature distinction. And of course, that's in large measure what the history of religion, apart from Christ, is, and Western philosophy for that matter, especially pantheism. It's a mingling of the circles. The creator-creature distinction is something that is, is uh, simply here in the first chapter of the book of Genesis in the Bible. So sin, which we find in Genesis 3, is ultimately a denial of God's authority and a denial of man's creatureliness. When man fell and accepted the temptation of the evil one, it was a denial of the creator-creature distinction. It was man attempting to set himself up as an authority over God. So that's first. We see in Genesis that man, that Adam, is a creature. And then we see that man is distinct from all other creatures. So if there is the creator-creature distinction, there also is a distinction between man, Adam, and Eve, distinct from all other creatures. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, we find that God took counsel with himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so forth. He took special care in creating man, so that in chapter 2, verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." The breath of his lips, if I may speak anthropomorphically, indicates a real intimacy between God and this special creature, man. And the sixth day is special because God created man on that day. There's an indefinite article, that is to say there is no definite article with regard to any of the other days of creation. But when we come to verse 31, we read in chapter 1 of Genesis... And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, the definite article. And undoubtedly, it is a special day because God created man on that day. By the way, let me mention, for those of you who are about to go off to college, and you're going to sit in some class, and some guy's going to take the Bible, and he's going to try and tear it apart in the way that uh, German critics were doing in the early 19th and late 19th and early 20th centuries, and it's still being taught in schools today. And they're going to tell you that uh, we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 two contradictory accounts of creation that some redactor, some editor brought together. Come on. I mean, really. How foolish can you be? Do we really believe that a redactor would be so, may I use the word stupid, as to bring together two accounts that are so radically different and to attempt to make people believe that those accounts are somehow the account of creation? Now what we have, of course, is that we find in Genesis 1 an ontological emphasis That is to say, we're dealing with being. And in the second chapter, we have a teleological emphasis. That is to say, he's explaining in some detail why God made the world that he made. Special focus upon the creation of man. So, man is distinct from all other creatures. But then as we think of Adam in Genesis, we also see that man's specialness is this. That man, this can be said of no other creature... That man is God's image bearer. Unique among the creatures is the fact that he is created in God's image after God's likeness. Man alone is God's image bearer among the creatures. You cannot say that of horses or pigs or kangaroos 
or apes. Only man is God's image bearer among the creatures. Not a part of who man is. Man is God's image bearer. It's not a little part of who man is, but man qua man, man as man, is God's image bearer. And so he rules over creation to the glory of God, chapter 1, verse 28. And in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he names the animals. Now, I hope you see the significance of Adam naming the animals. When he named the animals, that doesn't mean that uh, he called his goldfish Goldie or that he uh, named his, uh, his dog Spot. What we have here is a brilliant human being created in God's image before the fall who was able scientifically to classify the animals. That's what's happening here in the book of Genesis as he names the animals. And then as we move along, we see that this truth of God's uh, creating man in this special way is even underscored in the fact that procreation, the procreative act, dimly reflects God's creative power. So in chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named himself. Now you hear, of course, the reference there to Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And so even procreation dimly reflects God's creative power. That's really special uh, concerning the, um, the specialness of man. It's a wonderful thing. But then we find as we move on, of course, in Genesis in the third chapter that man rebelled in the garden. And without taking time to underscore the details, Genesis 3, uh, what makes the fall of man, the rebellion of man remarkable is this very fact that he's God's image bearer, and yet he rebels against God. And yet even here in Genesis 3.15, we are brought the very first promise of the gospel. As we are told, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now Paul makes it clear in the passage that we've read together in Romans 5 that he's banking off of these chapters. And upon these themes, we also find references to it in other places in Romans, for example, the first chapter of Romans. Paul makes it clear that Adam was the head of the human race, and Christ, the last Adam, is the one who redeems us from the fall. All are in Adam, and the whole race was plunged into sin and rebellion when Adam rebelled against God. The New England primer was right when it was going through the alphabet and children were taught, in Adam's fall we sin at all. This is precisely what Paul the Apostle teaches in the fifth chapter of Romans. So the point of Romans 5 and of 1 Corinthians 15 is that there was a first and a last Adam. And it is this that we will expound as we come to the fifth chapter and begin to look at those very detailed and difficult verses that we read earlier on. So that's the first point, Adam in Genesis. Man is a creature. Man is distinct from all other creatures. Man's specialness is that he is God's image bearer. Man rebelled in the garden. Now let's think through the implications of this. That's the second thing. 
the implications. And here are implications that we need to be aware of as we think of the relationship between Adam and Christ, the last Adam. The first implication is this. Adam prepares us for Christ. Adam was the head of creation, the head of his wife, and the representative man. That's the point of the verses, or at least some of that is the point of the verses in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Notice verse 14 in Romans 5 particularly. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, the reason I point out verse 14, and could point out other verses too, is because I want you to note that there was a definite historical time frame. There are definite historical time frames and references. So, a denial of Adam is a denial of the entrance of sin into time and space history. And the very frightening thing to me about some of the theology of Karl Barth, who is a denier of the historicity of Adam, is that Karl Barth sees sin as who man is. In other words, man, according to Karl Barth, is a sinner ontologically. He's done away with Adam, so he has no historical Adam, no entrance of sin into time and space, So he sees man as creature, as sinner. Now that's very serious. Because that denies what we've read in Genesis, that he is God's image bearer who fell into sin, who rebelled against God. It makes, in other words, it makes what it means to be a human being to be a sinner. And that's not true. To be a sinner is contrary to who we were created to be. Sin is an entrance into history, into time, and into space. And so it's important to see that the Apostle Paul views it that way with historical time frame references in this fifth chapter of Romans. But Adam points to Christ not as an afterthought, not some passing thought with Paul, but he points to Christ as the goal of history. It's true in other passages as well. In Luke, Jesus' genealogy is traced to Adam. In Romans 5, guilt and its removal is intertwined with Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection in the last day is inseparable from the contrast between the two Adams, the first and the last. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then Christ also restores the image that has been lost in Adam. And even though the name Adam is not used in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10, we have the recreation, the restoration of the image of God through regeneration. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness are restored. And so I think that implicit in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 is that Christ restores the image that was lost in Adam. Genesis, then, is the prologue to Scripture, and redemption is pointedly new creation, requiring, according to Paul, a first and a last Adam. There's a great great little statement that um, uh, good New Testament scholars often use, biblical scholars, and it is this, protology leads to eschatology. First things leads to last things. So what we read in Genesis 1 
lead us ultimately to Christ and to the eschaton that is to come. So that's one implication, a very important one. Adam prepares us for Christ. But another implication is this. Scripture goes back to creation for the proper relation of the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. Now, I'm not going to take the the time to read Ephesians 5, but it's a passage that you know and that is deeply embedded in this Adam, Adam Christology. In Ephesians 5, of course, the background is that Eve is taken from Adam and is to be cared for as his flesh. Christ and the church are related by this paradigm. So when God created Eve, it was so that he might understand, we might understand, the intensity of exclusive love. And that's why Paul can use that language for his ministry in 2 Corinthians 11.2. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin Christ. But even though we're not turning to Ephesians 5, let's turn to Matthew 19 briefly. Because when Jesus is asked a question regarding divorce by the Pharisees, it's important for us simply to see how he answers In Matthew 19, verses 3 to 5, Jesus says this, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, that's Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what does the Lord Jesus do in answer to the question regarding divorce? He goes back to creation, back to Adam and Eve. And he bases his argument regarding the permanency of marriage and the exclusivity of the love between a husband and wife on what we are taught in Genesis. So scripture goes back to the proper relation of the husband and wife and the wife to the husband. That's a very important implication. But another implication is this. Scripture also goes back to creation for order in the church. Not only does he go back to creation, does the New Testament go back to the creation, does Paul in particular, for order in the family... But Scripture also goes back to creation for order in the church. And I would remind you of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I'd like for you to turn there, actually. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, in which the Apostle Paul says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now let's pause there for a moment because what, what we're being told from pulpits today by and large is that the Apostle Paul is simply concerned with culture here. He doesn't want to shock the culture of his day by having women teach in a culture indeed where that might not be acceptable, especially in pagan cultures. By the way, there were a lot of women teachers in pagan cultures. Um, So it doesn't hold water from a variety of angles. But moving on, notice where he grounds it. He doesn't ground it in culture. 
He grounds it in creation. And he says in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, of course, I preach this text when I preach through 1 Timothy, and you can go to that sermon and listen in more detail. But it's very important to see that the Apostle Paul goes back to creation for grounding order in the church. He does not ground his argument in culture. He grounds his argument in creation. It's not time-bound and relative. These are not illustrations but commands. And the Apostle Paul, God through the Apostle Paul is saying, be content with this. Indeed, embrace this order with joy. But that's not all. The way in which we view one another, the, uh, the value we place on one another is grounded in the truth and reality of the creation of Adam. Uh, two verses just to demonstrate that. In Genesis 9, if you'll turn there, Genesis 9, verse 6. After the flood, picking it up at verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Well, here it is. For God made man in his own image. So the ground for capital punishment, according to Genesis 9-6, is that man is created in God's image, and to take the life of a man is to take the life of one who is created in the image of God. In James chapter 3, if you'll turn there, we read something similar addressed to the church. You know this passage that is dwelling upon the tongue and how we use our tongues... How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now I've come to chapter 3, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now look at verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so why is it such a serious matter that we curse people? It's a serious matter because they are made in the likeness of God. Going right back to Genesis 1, right back to Genesis 2. Well, now a word about science and Adam. Are we just too sophisticated to believe this anymore? Are we just naive folk to believe in the historicity of Adam? Quite frankly, that's sometimes the way in which I think it's being presented. We just need to get with it. Uh, One Old Testament scholar said that if we don't make room for theistic evolution, then we're going to be viewed as a cult and we're not going to be able to speak into the world. Well, let me tell you what will happen. If we compromise what the Bible teaches, 
then we will become irrelevant and we will have nothing to say to the world. Science and Adam. This is how the world this is how the world portrays it. We're just naive folk. But note that the whole fabric of society breaks apart when this is denied. I mean, have you noticed tonight that everything that we've touched upon relates to redemption, to family, and the church? Because we are denying what is true in our culture, then redemption, family, and the church are suffering in the way in which they are. Now, recently Vern Porthris wrote a fabulous article in the Westminster Theological Journal addressing the claim that the Human Genome Project makes it impossible to believe that, that there was an historical atom because DNA information demonstrates that we have a common ape ancestry. And perhaps you've read that in the news. It's been all in the news, off and on. He points out that the data does not interpret itself, and that the interpretation put upon it by evolutionists is what it is because Darwinianism is the reigning framework of interpretation. The viewpoint that there is no ultimate purpose for the universe and the presupposition of gradual process yields the conclusion that the evidence points to a common ape ancestry according to uh, the world. There's no place in their thinking for God and for God who works as he pleases. Now I'm summarizing Porthos at this point, but here's what he says, and I quote, If Darwinism says that the events involving the origins of living things are purposeless, it is making a quasi-religious claim about the lack of God's involvement. If it says that there are no exceptions to gradualism, it also presumes that it knows beforehand how God will interact with life, and that too is a religious claim. So Porthra's point is simply that Darwinism is not neutral and scientific. It's loaded with presuppositions. There are no brute facts. There are no uninterpreted facts. All facts are interpreted, and each of us approaches the facts with a set of presuppositions, either Christian or not, either biblical or not. And so he goes on to say, science studies the regularities of God's providential rule and can do so without making assumptions that ban the idea of divine purpose or ban God's exceptional acts. The Christian simply sees the DNA and that it's fundamentally God's design and that the similarities are revelatory of his infinite intelligence. The unbeliever sees the DNA and says, ah, common ape ancestry. At the end of his somewhat technical article in which he discusses junk DNA and percentages and all sorts of interesting issues, he has this to say, and I want you to hear it. The difference is more than academic. If the laws are impersonal and mechanistic, there can be no exceptions to observed regularities. On the other hand, if God, as a personal God, is governing the world, his personal purposes may include several dimensions. He is faithful in his governance, and his faithfulness leads to the regularities. At the same time, he is personally involved in relation to human beings, and his personal involvements and personal commitments may lead to special acts in accord with special purposes. No one can stop him from working exceptionally if he wishes. This view of God's involvement has implications for Adam and Eve. It is up to God how he wants to go about creating the world. He is sovereign. He specifies all the laws that scientists later explore. 
He is not a victim or a prisoner of his own laws. He may, if he wishes, create new species through gradual processes. He may also create in unique ways. God gave us the Bible in order to guide us. This guidance includes instruction concerning our understanding of who we are as human beings and our understanding of sin as rebellion against God and a disruption of an initially good creation. Most significantly, it also includes the good news of redemption from the pit of sin accomplished by Christ. If we understand God's purposes in this way from the Bible, we may continue to have confidence that He gave us a reliable account when He spoke about Adam and Eve. They did exist, and they were specially created in the image of God. Because of Adam's fall, we are all subject to sin. We must come to Christ for deliverance. And I think that he's absolutely right in his viewpoints on this matter. So, Christians should not be intimidated by the claims of Darwinianism. I have no specialty in this area, but I do know this, that none of us comes to the data neutrally. All of us come to the data with presuppositions either presuppositions that are drawn from the Word of God or presuppositions that are contrary to the Word of God. Let me bring this to conclusion by saying a few things. Must I believe in Adam? Must you as a believer believe in Adam? Well, look at what is involved, first of all. What have we seen? Since Adam is representative man, the head of creation, and since he is held out as the type of Christ, the last Adam... The reality of Adam is so intimately connected with the gospel that the gospel is lost without the historicity of Adam. Our view of the imputation of sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness depend upon this parallel. The genealogy of Jesus is traceable to Adam. The resurrection in the last day is tethered to its truth. Marriage order for the family, order for the church, and the way we view people, all of these are inseparable from what is revealed in Genesis. I'm sure when Dr. Klosterman is with us very soon, then speaks to us on, uh, on beginning and end of life issues, I'm sure he'll point out that the beginning and ending of life issues are what they are today, because we have forsaken the Bible's teaching that man is God's image bearer, and have adopted a philosophy of Darwinian evolution. Uh, Widespread acceptance of abortion on demand would not happen were the framework of Darwinian evolution not the accepted norm. So to repeat, the framework in which redemption takes place is dependent on Adam. No Adam, no Christ, no Christ, no salvation, no salvation, no hope. All hinges on the historicity of Adam. So I want to come to you as your pastor and plead with you to hold to the Holy Scriptures. Because as with everything, the issue at bottom is the authority of the Bible. Dr. Van Til said somewhere, has not the whole history of philosophy shown that when man regards his logical powers as positively legislative for reality, he winds himself into uh, a knot of contradictions.
Well, I think that's true. And modern attacks on the Bible have not shown, have not shown the Bible to be somehow an exploded book. Now, young people, you better hear it. Again, I went through a Christian studies department in my undergraduate work in university that was radically opposed to the authority of the Bible. And I constantly found myself raising my hands, hopefully respectfully in class, saying, what do you mean by that? That was a rather off-putting question because they had to explain themselves. What do you mean by that? Upon what authority do you make that statement? How is it still the Christian faith if you hold to that viewpoint and similar questions? Modern attacks on the Bible have not shown it to be an exploded book. And unless we begin with God's self-revelation in the Bible, nothing makes sense and anything goes. That's why the church is failing to address issues such as, uh, I put it in quotes, gay marriage because it is not marriage. It's an ethical problem that can only be addressed on the basis of the ultimately ultimate authority of God as revealed in the sacred scriptures. And so the problem is not the Bible. The problem is the blind nature of fallen man. The problem is that we are in Adam and need deliverance by the last Adam. And the church is so influenced by this. Recently, a friend of mine, whose name is Jason Strong, sent to me, came to visit me, and he sent to me afterward a link of, um, of his grandfather. Both his grandfather and his uncle were with Machen in the Machen trials. Um, his grandfather, William Strong, was still in the PCUSA Um, I guess it would have been when the UP and the PCUS were considering merger, and the 1967 confession was being brought to the Northern Presbyterian Church, and also a discussion of that as the basis for union between the North and the South. William Strong stood up on the General Assembly and made a beautiful and strong, gracious, loving, biblical defense of the old view of the Bible's inspiration, that was being rejected by the Confession of 67, he was heckled by the General Assembly in a part of his defense of the faith. But the thing that struck me was that the chairman of the committee got up and he essentially said this, that because of Enlightenment presuppositions, you know, we're talking about the Enlightenment of the 18th century, Immanuel Kant and so forth, because of Enlightenment presuppositions, we can no longer hold to that old view of biblical inspiration. I found it to be a most remarkable thing. Well, you can hold to the Bible's inspiration. And let me say that in addition to all of the various intellectual defenses that could be offered, that young people, when you get married and you live husband and wife, all right, When you are involved in governing the church, because some of you are going to be elders or deacons, or when you are involved in various ways in which your relationship with someone is going to be determined by your biblical presuppositions or not, then let me just put it frankly, these things revealed in God's Word correspond to the way things are. And if you go away from the way things are, 
then you're going to end up in a moral mess. That's why our culture is where it is. So if you're an unbeliever here tonight, you are called to repent of your autonomy and to submit to the Christ of the Scriptures. And believer, I just want to say again, you can trust your Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And young people, you'd better hear this if you would avoid intellectual and moral shipwreck. Base your thinking and base your living on the Bible. Now, parents, go home and say to your young people and children, did you hear what the pastor said? That if you would avoid intellectual and moral shipwreck, base your thinking and living on the Bible. You are not an authority over God's Word. God's Word is the authority over you and over me. You know, I've walked on Darwin's grave at Westminster Abbey. Had some pleasure in doing it, I might add. (laughs) He was created in God's image. I know that. But the reason I had some pleasure is because I could remember, there is Darwin, but the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen.